Thank you, my friend and your pastor, Kok Fai. I want to begin with a simple exercise, and I'll tell you the name of this exercise in a while. Okay, this exercise is called waiting for the speaker to continue speaking. <laughs> we waited for 30 seconds and not, I'm not sure how you feel, but you know when you have to wait and do nothing, the waiting is awkward. Uh, for some, it can be tense um, and even frustrating. As I said last week, waiting is hard. Waiting is hard because we are all, by nature, impatient. We want things to be done according to our own wish, and we want things to be done according to our own time. And in our world today, technology has made it worse because things are now done faster, and yet we have become more impatient. But waiting is a necessary pause in time. It is important for us to wait. It's important for us to have those pause in time in our lives. Last week, we talked about waiting for one another. We were looking within, in the body of Christ, where we learn to wait for one another. We learn to wait on one another by serving one another in the body of Christ. We learn to wait for one another by waiting for those who are slower or weaker to join us. Today, we are going to be looking at waiting for the Lord, or I would put it, waiting for the coming of the Lord, or waiting for the day of the Lord. What does it mean to live and serve God in the marketplace, in the world? In the places where you work, places where you study, or in your home, in your neighborhood? What does it mean to wait as we serve and live for God in the marketplace? And as I did last uh, Sunday, I'm going to do the same thing. Instead of one sermon, I'm going to give you five sermonettes. And after each sermonette, we're going to pause and pray. We're going to look at five passages in the Bible all about waiting. All about waiting for the Lord, for the day of the Lord for the coming of the Lord, for the coming of Christ. And the first passage we're looking at is taken from Titus chapter 2. And I believe uh, your pastor preached from this passage not too long ago. For the grace of God which brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to the ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. The glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. 
You know, we wait on many occasions and for different reasons. But of all the waiting that we do in life, the mother of all waits, we call this the mother of all waits, the mother of all waits is the waiting for the blessed hope. And this is when we remember two events which has broken into the history of the world. There are two things that break into human history. One has already taken place, and the other is going to take place. Two events breaking into human history, the grace of God that brings salvation, an event which has already taken place, and the glorious appearing of our Lord, something which is yet to take place. Now, Paul focuses our attention on these two things, grace and glory. Paul has been teaching the church about the grace of God, which has come into the world in the form of God's only son, Jesus. And that grace was demonstrated when he went to the cross to die for the sin of humankind. But this grace that the Apostle Paul taught was misunderstood by some of his followers, some of believers. And they thought that, well, since God has shown grace, they could live any way they want to. In other words, if God has shown grace to us in forgiving us of our sins, we can continue to live in our sins. And the more we sin, the more grace God will show, and the more forgiveness we will receive. Well, the premise may be right, but the application is wrong and dangerous. The grace of God should not lead us to make light of sin and gloss over sinning. So he says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared, but it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So instead of making us lax about sinning, it should make us determined to live a life away from sin. I'm not sure whether you have seen that movie, Saving Private Ryan, but there's one scene that has been etched in my mind ever since I saw the movie. You know, the movie is about this private, this very ordinary private that's gone into battle in the Second World War. And this private was rescued by an elite force sent to look for him and to take him home because three of his brothers had already been killed. And instructions came from the highest authority in the United, uh, the United States military uh, force that the mother should be spared the death of all her four sons. So one son has to be rescued and brought home. And this elite force went to look for him. And eventually they found him and they rescued him. But in the process, one by one in the team died. And the last one to die was the leader of the team. Now at the end of the movie, it shows this man, this private, Private Ryan, who has grown man now with his family, his wife, his children and his grandchildren, going to the grave of this leader of the elite force who died saving him. He fell on his knees before the gravestone and he wept uncontrollably. And then he turned to his wife and he said, Tell me, 
that I've lived a good life, that I've been a good man. Mine, you know, grace filled his life with such gratitude that he cannot but live a life that is good and be a man who is good. And so the grace of God cannot but motivate us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And just as we look back in gratitude, we also look forward uh, to the glory that is going to be revealed. You know, we are living in between the grace of God which has already been shown in the way Jesus came into the world to die for us. But there's also the glory for us to look forward to. We look back with gratitude and we look forward with hope. And this is what living in the world means to us. There's always the backward glance and the forward look. The backward glance is always in gratitude for what God has done, His grace. And the forward look is always with hope at what is going to be revealed, the glory at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Let's pause here to pray. Lord, I remember your first coming with gratitude. And I await your second coming with hope. In between, help me to live as your very own, eager to do what is good, and eager to live lives which are self-controlled, upright, and godly. Paul goes on in another place to say this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Now here the Apostle Paul uses an analogy. And the analogy is that of someone who is an heir to an inheritance. And he says that we are all heirs. Now, we are all heirs of an inheritance. Now, that's strange because the heir usually is the eldest son in the family. And in the Bible, the eldest son is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the heir of all things. But because we have died with him and we have been raised with him, we are called co-heirs. Co-heirs. Now, an heir which is to receive an inheritance does not receive it immediately. He has to wait for a time until he's of age. So an heir has to wait for the right time to receive his inheritance. And here Paul says that we are all heirs of God waiting to receive our inheritance when Christ comes again. And that is the point at which our status, our privilege as heirs will be realized. But until then, we wait. Uh, so every episode of waiting in our life uh, is part of that cosmic waiting. Waiting for the day when we will truly be what we are, what we are called to be, sons and heirs, sons and daughters of the Most High. The world is moving towards that climatic end and then not only will the glory of God be fully manifested, our status, our status 
as sons and daughters and heirs of the kingdom will be revealed, will be realized. Both our status and his glory will be realized. And meanwhile, well, we wait. We wait. And while we are waiting, it's not going to be easy because another analogy that Paul uses is that of pain. As we wait for the climatic end, as we wait for our status to be realized and for the glory to be fully manifested, it says here we, are, we have to be in pain. The whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So the analogy is that of labor pain, of a mother to be in agony waiting for the birth to take place. And there's this groaning, not only on our part, but on the part of the whole creation. But we are assured that this waiting and this groaning will one day come to an end. And meanwhile, we also have the promise of the Holy Spirit. He says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans, with groans that words cannot express. So while we are waiting, we are groaning, creation is groaning with us, and the Spirit is also groaning along with us. But one day, the groaning will come to an end. The birth pains will reach a climax, and then the birth will take place. And what joy it will be. Let's pause to pray. Waiting is never easy, Lord, but I thank you for your promise that all waiting will one day end. And whatever pain we suffer now cannot be compared with the joy that will be ours one day when our status as heirs and sons and daughters will be realized and we take what you have given to us as our inheritance. Amen. No, we are all waiting, but we are not the only one waiting. In the past, there have been others who have waited. And in fact, when we look at some of these people who have waited, we cannot help but admire them for their patience and for their resilience as they waited. And one example is that of Joseph Arimathea. It says here he was a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. He went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Now here is a brave man. Brave in one sense and yet cowardly in another sense. When Jesus was alive, he was afraid to reveal his true identity as a disciple of Jesus. But when Jesus died, he plucked his courage and he went to the Roman governor to ask for the body of Jesus. Now we are told in another, uh, in another uh, part of the gospel, in the gospel of Mark, that he was a man of standing in the council. And then we are told by Matthew that he was a wealthy man and he was a secret disciple of Jesus who did not consent to the council decision to put Jesus to death. In other words, he was a secret believer who voted for Jesus rather than against him in the council. But what an irony that his allegiance to Jesus was only manifested after Jesus died. But his role, Joseph's role in burying Jesus' body in a new tomb 
where no one has ever been buried became a very important point. His role became crucial in authenticating the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus was laid in a tomb where no body has ever been laid. And how do you explain that it was empty? There's no way to explain the empty tomb except the resurrection of Jesus. Well, after the resurrection of Jesus, we read no more of Joseph. He kind of uh, faded away from sin, but I'm sure that he saw the kingdom of God come when he witnessed not only the resurrection of Jesus, but also the inauguration of God's kingdom on the day of Pentecost. The resurrection of Jesus and the birth of the church was the coming of the kingdom he had been waiting for. But it's not the end of the waiting for the kingdom because today we still pray in the Lord's Prayer. Remember how we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. While Joseph saw the kingdom come, it has not come in its fullness. So we still pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is heaven. And so like Joseph Arimathea, we are still waiting for the kingdom of God. And we need the patience that Joseph demonstrated while he waited. Because one day, the waiting will end. And we will know that waiting has not been in vain. Let us pray. Lord, we are waiting for your kingdom to come, even though it has come, but not in its fullness. So give us patience to wait, and also the courage, like Joseph or Arimathea, Give us the courage to invite others to acknowledge you as king and to join us in entering your kingdom and in waiting for your kingdom to come. Amen. So Joseph waited for the kingdom and he saw it come. But there are many saints we know who waited for something, but they never saw what they waited for. They never received what they were promised. So we go to Hebrews, Hebrews 11. And we read this verse. All these people were still living by faith when they died, referring to the saints of the Old Testament. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted they were aliens and strangers on earth. Now, have you ever waited for someone who did not show up? Have you ever waited for something that never came? You know, we all love stories with happy endings, but life does not always play out that way. A woman longed for a husband, but she never married. Or a couple wished for a child, but they remained childless. I know a friend of mine was stricken with cancer, and I remember asking how I could pray for him. He said, pray that I will live long enough to walk my daughter down the aisle at her wedding. But he died before the wedding took place. You know, such stories can leave us disillusioned. Uh, because sometimes we are taught that God will always give us what we want if only we have faith and if we wait long enough. Well, such teaching 
It cannot be two because we have here in this chapter, the chapter about people of great faith. And he said that they did not receive the things promised. And that statement that is made at the beginning of the chapter is repeated at the end of the chapter. As we read the end of the chapter, it says, uh, it says that these are the people, even though they waited, they never saw what they waited for. But Matthew Henry said that these are the people who have great faith. And I like the way he puts it. He says, faith has a long arm and can lay hold of blessings at a great distance. And it is true. From a great distance, they could see. They could see all these things. And even though they didn't actually apprehend it. But in a way, they triumph because they are triumph points to a bigger story with higher stakes. Abraham waited and finally had a son. Um, Moses waited and he delivered the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt, took them across the Red Sea. Daniel waited in faith, praying to his God and survived a night with the lions. But all these triumphs of these great saints are not the end of the story. They all point to a bigger story with higher stakes. You see, the promised land that was given to Moses is not a place on earth. It points to a promised land that is above rather than below. The promised one that Abraham was waiting for was not just Isaac. Isaac was just a precursor of Jesus. And the promise of deliverance, either from the raging sea or from the hungry lions, it's not the end of the story because deliverance from lions and, and sea is not all that is the story is about. It's deliverance from sin and eternal damnation. So what the Bible tells us is that God has planned something better or greater for all of us. And the saints in the Old Testament, they only saw it very dimly, the coming of the Messiah, of Christ. Jesus came as a fulfillment of all promises. And whatever we are waiting for, we will find it ultimately in Him. We may not get what we want, but we can have Jesus. And by faith, we look above us and beyond us, where all promises will be fulfilled. Let us pray. Forgive me, Lord, for my short-sighted view of life, seeing only what is now and what is here. Give me the faith to look above and see it beyond so that all waiting, no matter how it turns out, will never be in vain. Amen. Finally, we come to Mark chapter 13, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I spent quite a number of years studying this passage. And this verse in particular, where it says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You know, today there's a lot of interest in how the world is going to come to an end. You know, with the proliferation of nuclear weapons and the threat of climate change. 
uh, the movie industry has given us a lot of uh, end-of-the-world scenarios. I remember one time I started collecting all the movies I could find on the end of the world. How is the world going to end? Is it going to be struck by meteor? Then you watch Armageddon. Now, is the earth going to get frozen over the day after? Um, the gravity of the earth's core is going to be turned upside down. There's a movie called The Core. Then there's Virus. There's a movie called Virus where the earth goes into a pandemic where we're attacked by a virus which kills almost everybody on, on, on the planet. Then there's 2012, the movie about climate change. And then Independence Day, alien invasion. Well, why is there so much interest about how the world is going to end? Well, one reason could be perhaps it's in our psyche. God has placed it in, in all of us to know that this world is going to not going to last forever. And that while we are waiting for something to happen, the world is deteriorating, it's breaking down. It's, it's kind of running down until it comes to an end point. Well, our 21st century is not very different from the first century when the Gospel of Mark was written. We believe that the Gospel of Mark was written probably before AD 70, before the destruction of the temple, probably quite close. And there was a time in AD 68 when Emperor Nero died. When he died, civil war broke out in the Roman Empire. There was instability. In one year, there were three emperors who became emperor and was killed. So you can imagine how turbulent those times were. There was earthquakes reported in several places. The famine was sweeping across uh, uh, Jerusalem. And in the midst of all this, there were self-proclaimed prophets coming and declaring that the world was coming to an end, attracting many followers after them. And this was a time when Mark wrote all this and reminded the people of what Jesus said. Jesus said, all these things must happen, but it is not the end. All these things must happen, but it's not the end. So beyond God, you do not know what a time will come. And then the whole chapter ends with this parable about a master going away and leaving all the assigned tasks to the servants and telling the servants, take care of your duties while I'm away because I will come back. Well, we are in that interim period. We're in the interim period. The master has gone. Master is coming back. We are all have our assigned tasks, whether in the home or in a school or in a marketplace. Not yet. Master hasn't come yet. So what does it mean for us? What does it mean to be waiting for the day? First of all, it means that we are living in between the first and second coming of Jesus. But there's no need for us to be defeatist. No need for us to feel defeated because we know that Christ on the cross has already won the war. The war has already been fought and won, but the battles are still going on. So there's no need for us to be triumphalistic. Because the battles are still going on, we still have to fight those battles, and we do not know whether we can win each battle or lose each battle. Uh, it's not wrong for us to be triumphant, and I like the way the song we sang just now, We Give You the Highest Praise, it's really a triumphant song. But there's a difference between being triumphant and being triumphalistic. Triumphalistic is when you think you can win in every battle. Well, we may not win in every battle, even though we may win the war eventually. So there is a distinction between uh, being triumphalistic and defeatist. Being triumphalistic is blowing the trumpet 
of victory when the war is not over. But being defeatist is sounding the retreat when you know that the war is going to be won. Why should you be retreating when the war eventually is going to be won? It's a fine balance in the way we think about how we live in this world. How can we not be triumphalistic, at the same time not be defeatist? Well, the one way is to think of the kingdom. Triumphalism is saying the kingdom is here now and we can have everything we want. Now, that is not true. But this, the danger is for us to swing to the other extreme and, say, uh, and, and take on a defeatist mentality and say the kingdom is not here and we cannot have anything now. Now, that is the language of defeat. And if you want an emoji to go with it, this is how you look if you are triumphalistic and this is how you look if you are a defeatist. Uh, and um, we don't want to be either. Yeah. We don't want to be either. We're in the midst of many battles. And we're not sure whether we will win each battle. There's a battle going on now in Taiwan on the referendum on gay marriage. We have a battle going on here with the 377A. And and we don't know whether we will win the battle or lose the battle. But we are sure of one thing, that we will win the war. That in the end, we will be victorious. Let me close with what happened in the year 1780. If you read back to history, it's very interesting. Towards the end of the 18th century, there was this feeling that the world was coming to the end. There were earth-shaking events taking place on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. In Europe on the one hand and in North America on the other. Now that's not new because we have Brexit and Trump today. Uh, it seems that history is repeating itself. But imagine at the end of the 18th century that was how things were going. When the year 1780, there was an assembly being convened in Connecticut in North America. And the speaker of the assembly rose to speak. And there was this feeling that something was going to happen. Something drastic was going to happen. The world could just end. There was this roll of thunder outside, very loud thunder. And everybody kind of got shocked. And the speaker said this. The speaker said, uh, either this is the end of the world or it is not. Uh, if it is not, we should proceed with the business. And if it is, I prefer to be found doing my duty. Mine, I thought that is a classic example of what it means to serve God and to live for Him in the world today. If it is the end, well, we only be found doing our duty. If it is not the end, we just carry on doing what we are doing. And that is a challenge to all of us as we wait for the coming of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, the world may end in our lifetime, or it may not. Whichever, I want to be found, I want to be found waiting at my post.
and we found watchful and faithful to what you have called me to do. We pray for each one of us here, Lord. Whatever duties you have assigned to us, whatever post you have sent us to, whether in our home, in our church, in the marketplace, wherever you sent us, Lord, help us to wait and to watch. Not to be defeatist, neither to be triumphalistic. To believe that your kingdom has come, but it's not come in its fullness. That the war has been won, but the battles are still going on. So help us to know what it means to wait for that day when all things will be made clear, when we will realize our inheritance and we will see your glory in all its glory and fullness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.